and open your Bibles to Psalm 1. That'll be where the message is from today. But before I get started, I just want to just remind everybody, I think we all know, but just in case there's especially... All right. Rookie mistake. It's hard to do that when you've got a belly like mine. It likes to fall over. Um, but anyway, it is Valentine's Day, so I was reading, and John uh, the Apostle reminds us that we... Thanks, Josh. <laughs> One in the crowd. Okay. Anyway, it is the day of God's love for us um, that we want to remember, but for the spouses, apparently, and especially the husbands, it is also a day for you to express uh, the love you have for your bride. Um, so let's make sure we do that as we open with a word of prayer, and then we'll go to the scriptures. Father, we do want to thank you for this day. Thank you that you are a God who is love in itself. Um, So your son, the Lord Jesus, as he walked on this earth, showed us what that looks like, to love. Um, And and so we thank you that on this day, as we look to the brides and the the husbands that you've brought into our lives, as as parents, we look to our children, um, and even into some of our friendships and um, our church family who has gathered here with us today, Lord, our hearts are overflowing um, with just thanksgiving and love for them and love for you for giving them to us and allowing them to be a part of our life. Um, We have been fulfilled. Our quivers are full um, and our hearts are full. And so, Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who graciously gives us what we need. You've put those people into our lives to make us whole so that we would not be alone. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. And as we come this morning, Father, even more than that, we look heavenward. As we were singing those songs and we look at the Lamb um, who is seated on the throne, who reigns in victory. Um, He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He's our elder brother. He's our friend. He is our all in all. 
And our desire this morning, Lord Jesus, is that you be lifted up, lifted up in our hearts, lifted up in our minds, lifted up in our song, lifted up in our prayers, lifted up in our lives, because you alone are worthy. And so we yield to you this morning, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you've sent, um, the great paraclete, the great comforter, the great teacher, who is here with us this morning, who has taken up a residence in our heart and makes it possible that as we read these words, our hearts leap with joy as John leapt in the womb in your presence. So help us to have that response as we hear your voice in the reading of your word and in the preaching, that our hearts might be softened, that our minds might be altered, and that we might display even more perfectly the image, Father, of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this world. And I thank you that you'll accomplish that for your own name's sake and for his. And I pray it in his name. So Psalm 1, I'll just read through it. Hopefully I can do this. I'm waiting for a new prescription for my glasses. So, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish." Amen to God's word. So this psalm, as I was preparing, once I had heard that Nigel um, was leaving, the psalm came to me um, over time as I've been dealing with my sons in particular, uh, but also with other people, to include people sitting in this room. Um, the world that we live in right now is full of deception. Um, it's full of half-truths. It's full of flat lies, and the Christian is often struggling. And then I just wrote this on here, who informs your mind and your heart? Is it moral people? By moral, I mean they're not Christian people, but they are moral. They're good people. They do good in the world's view. Is it religious people? that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have religion? Is it political people, those that run for office and those that support them? Is it your financial advisor? Is it your career counselor? Is it a philosopher that you like? Is it a psychologist or an academic? Because every day, as we watch television, as we read books, as we have interactions with each other on, um, I don't listen to any that I'm aware of anyway, I don't know what podcasts actually are other than people talking, it used to be talk radio, but I guess it's called podcasts now. Um, as you listen to podcasts, who are you listening to? Because the world is out there and it is speaking to you constantly, 
daily, feeding you messages. In your workplaces, the conversations you have with your workmates, the conversations you have with family members that are not Christian people, the conversations that you have with people who you respect in your life, people that have done good. Maybe they're a little further up on the food chain than you are. Are those the people that are informing your heart and your mind? I want to read a proverb for you that I've had a big part in my own conversion story. And then I'm going to jump into this psalm and, and we'll see what the Lord has to say about who should be informing your heart and your mind. Proverbs number 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. When you are being informed by all of these worldly sources, it will seem right, but its end is the way of death. And I want to kind of show you what the proverb tells us and what the psalmist has to say about how should we walk. What's the way of the righteous? So in the first opening verses, it's actually, the first words, in fact, are beautiful. Blessed is the man, the woman. Blessed is the person. God's blessings are upon you. It's just like the Beatitudes. If you go into Jesus as he opened up uh, that great Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the blessings, blessed are you. That's the same word use that's just being used here. The blessings are already there on this person, and he begins it with the negative, what you don't do. That's what the world thinks about you as a Christian and me as a Christian in, in many ways, is they only focus on what it is we don't do, because it's very restrictive being a Christian. All of the rules, well, even the psalmist, as he opens this, this passage up, is going to speak about what that blessed man doesn't do. And you see there three different um, instances that he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now yours may say the wicked, depending on the translation that you're using. Um, he does not stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. So in this what we don't do phrase, there's actions we don't take, and there's people that we don't take them with. So you might not think much about those words, but what's happening there is as the psalmist is writing this, and he's using sinners um, and ungodly people as he opens up, and then sinners and then scornful, there's a gradation of the wickedness of these people that are being mentioned. King, New King James says ungodly. Yours might say wicked, but really what that is is, is, is an innocuous, a, a descriptive word as you can get for an ungodly person, for a non-Christian. So they're wicked people. Well, you think, well, the, the moral person, your next-door neighbor, the one that is not Christian, but he's a good guy. He's not a murderer. He's not an axe thief. He's not an embezzler. He's not an adulterer. He's a good dude, just like I thought I was. The Bible would describe me as ungodly or wicked. So these are just the people in your life. There's nothing necessarily horrible about them, but they've rejected God. And then he grades up to the next level of sinners. These are people that have some kind of an understanding of what's right and what's wrong, but they don't care. They just do it anyway. 
Those are the sinners. They're just violating the law of God. And then he ends up with the scorners. Well, as you get to that level of person, these are the people that not only commit sin, but encourage others. So they want to justify not only the sin they commit, but they want to surround themselves with other people. Well, those guys are easy for us. I am not going to sit in the seat of the scornful. Hopefully you're not going to. Most of the people at the top of the list wouldn't sit in the seat of the scornful because they're scorners. They're actively against God, outright against him. Thugs, criminals, those types of people, and they encourage others to be the same. And we can probably, as Christian men and women, we can probably separate ourselves a little bit from the sinners, depending on what sin it is, right? You know, that's an easy sin. I, you know, that, that's not so bad. That's, you know, he's not an axe murderer. The ones that we really struggle with are those wicked people. Because we don't like to think of people in our lives as wicked. That word just does not come into the vocabulary. But again, these are people. This is about the, the, the easiest word to use, ungodly. They have no use for God. Paul describes this progression in Romans. So he opens up in Romans chapter 1. He tells us that no one, no one in and of themselves is a godly person. Not in your flesh. You're born under sin. You're born under Adam's curse. And as he goes from chapter 1 through chapter 3, which I'm doing in a, in a study right now with my family, it's a horrible tale of how we begin by just rejecting God and usurping him by bringing in creatures and wisdom and philosophy um, and things that seem right. And that grades up to behaviors. We get into the realm of the sinner now where we actually start acting that out, and it ends up in the scorner's seat. Because as Paul writes in Romans, not only do they do evil themselves, but they encourage and provoke others to do likewise. And you can read that list of sins. Um, that's how Paul describes it. That's what the psalmist is writing here, that the righteous is the blessed man, the blessed person does not sit in the seat, walk in the street, or stand in the path of these types of people. So we don't do that. Now, does that mean you don't have friends that are not Christian? Does that mean that you can't listen to a financial advisor when you're trying to figure out how to do investments of your money? Does that mean that you can't listen to anyone that is not a Christian? No, because the Bible remains silent on many things. Should I do a 401 or an IRA? Are they the same thing? They might be, by the way, because I don't know what they are. But um, <laughs> You know, should I do stocks or bonds? Should I save or spend? The Bible is not necessarily going to tell you, well, if bonds are down, stocks are up, so go stocks. If stocks go down, get bonds, because when stocks go down, bonds go up. It's not in there. So that's okay. It's not that the information in the world available to you is useless. But how are you supposed to know you're supposed to be investing that money and not giving it to somebody else? Well, you know, God only cares about 10%, right? 
That's what everybody says, 10%. Most people are like, 10%? God cares about 100% of his money. And it is his. He's letting you hold it. Well, you won't know that if you get your counsel from the world. You'll, you'll, you'll think that 10% is enough, and you'll get that even if religious people are talking to you. Nobody likes to hear the preaching about tithing and offering because it's uncomfortable for us. But we need to hear it because the world's not going to tell you otherwise. But if you read God's Word, He will speak to you about your finances. He will speak to you about your relationship with your wife. He will speak to you about how to raise your children. He will speak to you about your career path. He will speak to you about every single issue of life that comes your way if you will listen. If you will seek, you will find. The Bible tells us that it is sufficient for all of our needs. It will leave you lacking in nothing. So that's why we don't walk stand or sit with these people. We do interact with them. Jesus even prayed that we wouldn't be taken out of the world. Why do you think the church is in the world? Because he uses the church to display his glory. He uses the church to extend his work. So we need to be involved in the world. We just don't stand, sit, or get comfortable with them. And we never allow the world, in whatever form, to inform our mind and our heart. Because when we do, we lose the blessedness. But contrary to what the world thinks, God never tells you don't do something without giving you the alternative. And the psalmist doesn't do that either. Because as we continue on in the, in the scripture, verse 2, this is the positive. This is what we do. So we know what we don't do. What is it that we actually, I'm not going to say do-do, um, <laughs> but what we do. <laughs> One of these days I will figure out how to get around that. But <laughs> His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So that's the positive. That is what we do. That is what should inform the mind and the heart of the righteous. The man who is straight is what that word means, the straight one. So the one who is straight meditates on the law of God day and night, continually. Why? Because earlier in the verse, it's his delight. The law of God is not burdensome to the blessed one, to the righteous one. It is a delight. It brings him joy. It gives him fulfillment. It guides his path. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a guide unto my path. I know which path to take, which next step. How? Thy word. We just sang about it. Thy word. So it's my delight. I'm thrilled to read the Bible. Are you? Sometimes, I mean, the begats can get kind of bothersome. But I love reading the Bible. I love teaching. I love hearing you guys talk to me about it. Why? Because it encourages my spirit. It's the truth that says, Meh. 
It's my delight, and I meditate on it day and night. Reading the Bible every day, if you have a Bible reading plan, if you read your Bible every morning for 20 minutes, and then you close it up and say, okay, now it's time to get to work. What good are you doing? You're giving God 20 minutes, and then and we do that. We live these compartmentalized lives. Okay, God time's over. Now I gotta go to work. I need to do my job. Did what you read inform anything that you're going to do in your job? Did it inform anything that you're going to do when you speak with your wife or your kids? Did it inform any decisions that you've got? Ken and Judy just sold a house and walked through that process in like, what, 15 minutes? You know, sold a house, got in another house, moved everything. God worked through that. We've heard the testimonies. In a lot of people's case, they don't think God's involved in that because what does God care about where you live? You're not there by accident. He put you there. Are you informed by that? Do you meditate? So when you close that book and you go on about your day, are you thinking about what you read? Are you meditating on it? Lord, it didn't make any sense to me. I've had those days where I read, I don't even know what he's talking about. I'm just going to think about it. Let me just think on it for a little while. Let me just mull it over. Let me just chew it. And the Holy Spirit, who is your teacher, at the least opportune moment, a light will go off in your head. It might be four hours later and you're in the middle of doing something else. And it'll just open up. Oh. That's why we meditate on God's law. And hear the words. It's the law of God that I meditate on. Not the blessings. The blessings come with it. But it's the word, the law. This is the law of the Lord. This is not a suggestive document. It is a commanding document. But in that, I take delight. And in that, I set my mind. So when I'm listening to my podcast, so when I'm talking to my coworkers, I'm hearing what they say. And the more and more that you meditate on the law of God, what you'll find more often as you go through that process is you will, in your mind, understand the falses that are coming into your ear, into your ear, excuse me. Because that doesn't jive with God's word. Thy word, O Lord, have I written on my heart, so I might not sin against you. That's through the meditation and the study and the focused prayer on God's word. We were in our Sunday school class this morning. We're studying through 1 Samuel, and we're at the point right now where David has Saul presented to him on a platter. And Saul has been pursuing David to kill him. And there he is. And the men with David encourage David. Right there he is. They actually give him false prophecy saying, it's just as the Lord said, His, your enemies will be placed before you to do whatsoever you shall uh, do with them. But David doesn't kill Saul. And we were talking about it this morning. There's a reason. Because in the law of God, you do not raise your hand against God's anointed. 
Even God's anointed king, who has been told he will be removed as the king, even as David, who has been told by God you will be the king, even though Saul at the time is doing everything within his kingly power to murder an innocent man, David, Saul has chased him from his family. Saul has now put him into a cave where he is in hiding. The great warrior king David is hiding in a cave for his life. And God puts Saul right there. The world would have said, kill him. The world did, according to Scripture, say kill him. But David didn't because David knew that that would be wrong. It would be sin. That's what the psalmist is telling us here. Don't listen to the world. Meditate on the law of God. Let it be your delight. Why is that so important? Verse 3, the result. This is how the life of that person is described, that righteous one, that straight-line walker, that blessed of the Lord person will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. His, excuse me, skipped a verse there, a part of a verse, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. That's the description of the righteous person, the blessed one. And it is a huge description. And it's a certainty. If this is you, if you are straight, if you are righteous, you will be like a tree planted along the water's edge. Jesus says in John 10, I want you to have life and have it in abundance. So your present condition, your present condition will be like that tree that is fed directly by the streams of living water doesn't have to send out its roots, not out in the arid, dry ground. Being a Christian, living with God's law, delighting in God is not going to make you that tree that you see on the Castle Rock Company's thing. It's just this tree out in the middle of nowhere with nothing around it, and it looks dead. You will be a blossoming, fruit-bearing, living tree, constantly fed by the water, which is right there. So your present condition will be that you will be alive and you will be alive in abundance to the point that you will bear fruit in your season. So Jesus, again, if you go into John chapter 15, he talks about the, the analogy of him being the vine and we're the branches. And what does he say there? If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the same imagery that Christ himself is using that the psalmist is telling us is we will be a fruit that is alive, that is planted near the living waters, bearing its fruit. So you will be a blessing to your family. You'll be a blessing to your co-workers. You will have a blessed life of fruitfulness and usefulness and all that God has given you when you use what the tools are and the giftings that he's called you to. You will bear fruit. So you will presently live an abundant life and you will bear fruit and you will be alive, but you will also be an enduring tree. Your branch will not wither. 
you look in the New Testament, and it's, it's tough. I mean, anybody sitting here that's a Christian in this world, you face challenges, you face trials. Why? For the perfecting of your faith. Not because God gets jollies out of testing you, but because he's perfecting you. He is winnowing away all of the trash that you brought, cleansing you, making you holy, because he himself is holy. But you will endure. You will endure in the times that we're in. If you've read the book, you know it gets worse, not better. So you'll be an enduring tree. The storm will not make you wither. You will endure. And then lastly, you're an everlasting tree. An everlasting tree. The leaf will not wither, and whatever you do will prosper. We're going to see as we close this out that if you look in the book of Revelation, the people standing before the kingdom of God are standing there in eternity. So you will forever have life and have it to the full. You will forever bear fruit that brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, that honors your Father in heaven. Forever you will be useful, you will be fulfilled, you will be blessed of God forevermore if you will just walk this way. The psalmist does close out by contrasting the result. He says the ungodly are not so. He's very clear. They're like the chafe that the wind drives away. So those of you, and I've heard the example many times, but when they would... Um, I guess be sifting weed is what you'd call it. Um, they had these big baskets and they would just throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the chafe because it's light and useless. It had its use as the wheat was growing, by the way, didn't it? But now what is it? It's chafe. There's no, no use for it. It just blows away. That's how the ungodly will be. They will be like the chafe, which the wind just blows away. The ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So that's the contrasting end product. These people in this world that we listen to, some of them even well-intentioned, are giving you information, they are giving you counsel, they are giving you wisdom, which is the same wisdom of worldly wise man, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress. He was accosted by the worldly wise man, was the character's name, and others that would bring to him these tempting, seemingly right things. Because there was just enough wheat in that nugget to believe it. And unfortunately, at Christian's point, as he walked his long trek into the promised city, he was susceptible to deceptions just like you are, and just like I am. And there they would come, and Christian ended up in several places on his journey. But the end of those people is destruction. They will not stand in the judgment. This is a teaching that a lot of people don't like, but we have to reckon this to be true um, or throw the whole Bible out. 
Because in Revelation, you can look it up for yourself, chapter 20, verse 11 and following, it says that at the great white throne, all of the dead will appear. The sea will give up its dead. The grave will give up their dead. And everyone will be judged. And the books will be opened. And there is a book of life of which your name as a child of God is written. But there are other books that are open at that judgment. And everything that you've ever done is recorded in those books if you are outside of Christ. Every sin, every condemnation, every bad decision is written in the books. There is nothing hidden that shall not be uncovered at the great white throne. And they will not stand. There will be no excuse. God's not going to give you a mulligan. You will stand condemned. Because the only thing that can clear the book is the blood. So the ungodly will not stand. They're like chafe. They're going to get thrown up and they're going to get blown away. And oh, that it would be so easy if they would just be blown away to lay on the floor somewhere. But they will be sent, according to the Bible, to the lake of fire to be condemned under hell's condemnation for all of eternity under the very wrath of God, separated with no hope. None. No light. And they will have conscious torment. They will understand, as the Bible tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, even those who cannot save themselves. They will bow their knee. They will recognize, oh my God, like the centurion said, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God that we murdered on that cross that we crucified, that we shoved that thorny crown on his head, that we humiliated, that we rejected because we knew better. He couldn't be because we got to decide who he is. You're not my God. That's what the ungodly's condition will be forever. Do you want to listen to the counsel they give you? Do you want to let your heart be informed by people whose end is destruction, who are described by the Bible currently as enemies of God and at war with him, whose mouths are open tombs? Or would you rather take your counsel from the Lord, from God himself who has written these words for us? For the Lord, verse 6, the certainty of it all. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. The Lord knows your path. He knows your way. He's designed it. He's made you for this day, put you in this place, given you his own word, and he knows you. And you will stand in his presence forever. Perfect. Sin will not be able to touch you. So the struggles that we have this day are nothing to be compared with the eternity that we will enjoy forever in Christ. These are the promises. But in this world we live in, we have to take this 
information. This divine word and let it seep into our hearts. We have to delight in this description. So the challenge that I would give the church today is in this coming week, pick a verse, any one of them, there's six, and meditate on it. Well, I don't have time to read my Bible every day. You don't have to read your Bible every day. You're in church. We've read it. I'll give you my Bible if you need it to take it home. Um, but just pick one of these verses and just think about it all week. All week. Just meditate. Blessed is the man. You don't even have to do the whole verse. Just that piece. Blessed is the man. What does that actually mean? Just meditate on it. And what you'll find is that you will become like this tree described in Psalm 1. You will get to that place where you will understand what blessed means. Favored of God. Friend like Abraham of God. And he will bless you so that you can be the person he has already made you to be. So that is our scripture for the day. Father, I want to thank you that the psalmist has written to our hearts. He's written to our hearts, Father, a message that is timeless. Because in the day it was written, I think of King David in his day, he was faced from every corner and from every angle with falsehoods, with temptations, with trials, with testings. And Father David was not perfect, but he was a man after your own heart. And so we, like King David, desire this day, Father, to be a blessing to you. We desire this day to glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus, in everything that we say and everything that we do and everything that we are. That is our hope and our desire, and we recognize, Lord God, that apart from your grace, we can't do it. And so we will abide in Christ as, as strongly as we can and ask you to give us the grace that we might never bury out to the left or to the right, but that we would be these righteous people that are straight by the glory and by the grace and by the mercy of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will do it, Father. So grant us the desire of our heart, which is what your word tells us, and let that desire be your law. And I thank you that you'll do that because it brings glory to you and it brings your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is everything to us, Lord, into that place in our own hearts where he is worthy, not just with our words, but with our lives. He is worthy to be praised. So I thank you that you've done all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand.